Good morning. Some incredibly encouraging, hope-filled songs uh, that we get to sing to the Lord, we get to uh, sing over each other, and that we get to in some way sing to ourselves, remind us of God's grace, His sufficiency, His, His goodness, His kindness. And, you know, we're hitting a subject this morning where uh, it's one of the harder subjects that we'll ever have to think about as Christians in this broken world. And so we really need to have all that we were just singing about in mind as we come to this subject. We are in uh, 1 Corinthians 7 still. Uh, we've got this week and next week, and then we'll, uh, we'll finish up this chapter of Corinthians. And today we're talking about divorce. And here's what I know, Uh, every person in this room, in some form or fashion, has probably been touched by this reality. My parents divorced when I was eight, so uh, I became acquainted with this very early in life, and I have uh, seen it very personally um, for all of my life, and then obviously in the role that I'm in, I, I talk a lot to couples about Uh, any number of things, this being one of them. So it's interesting as we're in 1 Corinthians 7, um, certainly Paul is addressing marriage, but in some ways you can't address marriage without addressing divorce in a fallen world. And then divorce, if we're going to talk about that, what we really have to talk about is conflict. And uh, we're going to get a lot of great instruction this morning, but I think it's helpful to see how conflict makes its way into a relationship. Certainly it started in the garden and it has worked its way out all through history. And I remember Kimberly and I, um, stars in our eyes and great hope and dreaming about life together. It really wasn't that long after our wedding when conflict came to visit. And I just remember it was... It was far more overwhelming than I ever expected. And having grown up in a broken home, I was determined that this will not be true in my home. And yet there it was. And again, far more than I expected. And I remember thinking, what have we gotten ourselves into? Maybe you can relate. And maybe it wasn't in year one, maybe it was in year two or five or 20. But somewhere along the way, in a broken world, every marriage gets confronted with brokenness. And two sinful people having to work out a relationship with each other. Maybe you've had these thoughts. I never imagined it would be so hard. Right? Because we were so in love. I never imagined I would feel so lonely. We just don't expect that when we get married. She isn't the same or he isn't the same person that I dated. You ever face that? You know, he or she used to bring out the best in me and now they just bring out the worst. You might even have come to a place where you said, I don't know how long I can do this. That's a fragile place to be. And that's the very reason why I think Paul addresses this and why we're going to 
address it today. And you know, I, I wish in that moment for, for any of us, if we could just be magically transported to that altar. You remember when you stood there and you held that man or that woman's hands and you looked into their eyes and you made some vows. It, let me re refresh your memory. I take you to be my wedded husband or wife to have and to hold from this day forward for better or worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part. Do you remember that? Were, the, were we just kind of stating intentions? Like, I'm going to do my best. I'm going to give it my best shot. I don't know how it's all going to play out, but I'm just going to go for the gusto and I hope it goes well. Were, were those just intentions or were they commitments? Were, were, were we saying to one another, I'm, I'm committing to this? Culturally, I think those words have become more sentimental than sacred. And we know that because so often those words that I think were uttered in sincerity on the altar, they begin to fade into obscurity when life gets harder than we expected. It seems like that's where at least some, if not many, of the Corinthians were. I, I think for whatever reason, life had gotten really hard for some of those husbands and wives. And they wrote a letter to Paul, if you remember, we've talked about that, and they had some questions. And certainly some of those questions were related to marriage. But like I just described, it wasn't only about marriage, it was also about what do we do when we feel like we can't go any further? What do we do when we feel like I've just had enough and I'm ready to end it? I'm sure there was a lot of strain there and many of them were imagining greener pastures. If they could just get out of this relationship, they could get to a better place. And inevitably, they were looking for loopholes. And Paul is going to speak into that here. And I think generally he's going to say, the last place in the world that you and I need to be looking is for loopholes when we're coming to that hard place in our marriage. What we need to be looking for is for God to intervene with all of his grace and bring about reconciliation. That, if you don't hear anything else, that is the heart of this message that we're going to hit today. Now, I want to say a couple of just kind of general comments before we get into the text. Um, this is obviously a very sensitive issue. And I recognize that there are some in our body that have experienced divorce and perhaps have uh, entered into remarriage. And what I want you to hear today is we are going to talk primarily about the ideal. That is not a slight against you. I don't want you to feel beat up by that because literally think about this. 
Any subject that we talk about in the church when we're preaching, when we're studying God's word, aren't we always looking at God's ideal as it compares to our reality? And aren't we always, as a church, trying to strive for the ideal by grace, through faith, but we just recognize that we all fall short? So having said that, divorce is not the unforgivable sin. This isn't like in its own little category all by itself, and it's like really, really, really bad, and everything else is just sort of bad. It's like this is just in the big swath of brokenness that we face every single day in a sin-wrecked world. So if, if this has touched your life in that way, I, I want you to hear this with all of the compassion, uh, without any condemnation, with every bit of the grace of God that he affords us as the body of Christ. Okay, can we do that? All right. When we get to this subject, it's interesting. I think everybody in this room probably has some thoughts or opinions, certainly emotions about the subject of divorce. And I get that. Unfortunately, when we start talking about it or trying to work out what we think about it, oftentimes we don't bring more to the conversation than our opinions or our thoughts. I wonder how many of you have spent very intentional time searching the scriptures to find out exactly what it says and what it means when it comes to divorce and remarriage. If you haven't, can I urge you, because this, this is such an important issue in our day, in our culture, and certainly in our church, like we don't want to live with your opinion or mine. We want to know what God has to say about this. So I put the passages right on your outline, and you can spend the next weeks or months or years going through these carefully, thoughtfully, humbly attentively and let the Lord speak through his word. We're going we're gonna, to, honestly, it'll feel like we're rushing through these passages today. I'm going to try and, and give you just some good general takeaways, but I, I want to urge you to spend some time here personally so that you're not just sharing opinions. You are really walking in God's uh, truth about this subject. Now, there are two passages that we want to start with. One is in Genesis and one is in Ephesians, Genesis 2 and Ephesians 5. And what we get here is the foundation, certainly for our understanding of marriage, which then informs our understanding of divorce. So we got to kind of follow in that order. So Genesis 2, 22, here's where we read about the, the creation of marriage. The rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman. He brought, it, brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then here we go. Therefore, in light of that, God's intentions, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So here's the picture, marriage 101, leave, cleave, 
become one flesh. Say that with me. Leave, cleave, become one flesh. Here it's leave, hold fast, become one flesh. This phrase is the foundation for a work that humanity does not do. God does this. We simply, we sign up for it. (laughs) We say, okay, Lord, I'm going to give myself to this other human being. But did you catch the one flesh part? That's not just a physical thing that a man and a woman do. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. But there is something here that God does that only God can do. And that is what defines marriage from God's perspective. And that's really what we want to get this morning. Now, this phrase shows up in Matthew 19, Mark 10, and Ephesians 5. We're going to look at Ephesians 5, but in all of those places, the writers are emphasizing the activity of God to unite one man and one woman in a permanent covenant or committed relationship. So they are highlighting certainly the institution of marriage, but God's activity of uniting. Now, what is that uniting? Like, what's happening there? And I I came across an illustration a few years ago. I was doing this thing uh, with my kids called Passport to Purity. I don't know how many of you have done that. Fantastic resource if you're trying to kind of help your kids get some understanding around marriage and relationships and sexuality and all that. But here, here it is. You got two people. And they're just kind of doing their thing, right? And then all of a sudden, they find each other. And there's some attraction, some interest. So they start, quote, talking, right? Isn't that what we do these days? We talk. I never understood that. I'm sorry. But anyway, so they're talking. And the the relationship progresses. They start to, to really communicate some interest and attraction. And then one day, the guy pops the question, will you be my wife? She says, yes. And so they they stand at an altar and uh, vow their lives to each other. And the, the pastor says, I now pronounce you husband and wife. Then they walk down the aisle again together and they go to the reception and everybody's cheering and laughing and all that. And then they leave. They go on their honeymoon. And there, they physically live out what has now become spiritually true by God's design. So two become one. It's a beautiful thing. Always together, never apart. Two become one, something only God can do. Now, here's where it gets messy. What happens when the two face all of the conflict and brokenness and sin and prone to wandering that we just sang about it a minute ago, and they get to that place where they go, I just don't know if I can do this any longer. And then they get to the place where they say, I've really had enough. I'd like to undo what God did. So let me show you what that looks like. 
try and, and try, you know, it's, you just try and pull it apart. And it just doesn't leave those two people the same way they were before they said, I do. That's painful. It's devastating. Horizontally. For a man and for a woman. For a husband and for a wife. But you know what? It's way bigger than that. I like what Andy Stanley says. You can't un-one what God has made one. Here's what God did. When you guys said, I do... And that relationship was consummated. You became a picture of something greater than you ever imagined. Listen to Ephesians 5. We get that phrase again. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. And then Paul explains the significance of this. Certainly there is pleasure and fulfillment and satisfaction and joy and dreams fulfill, all that stuff. But here's what God's point was. This mystery is profound, Paul says. I am saying that it, that one, that two becoming one relationship refers to Christ and the church. So more than anything else, God's highest priority for your marriage it has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with him putting on display for all the world to see the reality of God and man being in relationship. And not just any relationship, but one, we sang about it a minute ago, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. That's what that picture represents. And when we try to unone what God has made one, we destroy that picture. And that is why God is so opposed to divorce. We hear about it in Malachi 2. I want to read this to you. God is confronting Israel. And one of the things he's confronting is their approach to marriage. Listen to what it says. There is this second thing that you do. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer re regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? So they're wondering, why, why isn't God blessing what we're doing? He goes on to say, because the Lord has witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless. Though she is your companion and your wife, by covenant, two became one. Did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. He wanted to perpetuate this picture of redemption. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel covers his garment with violence. He is opposed to that, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. I am completely convinced 
that this would have been one of the places that Paul would have been thinking about as he wrote what he wrote in 1 Corinthians 7 as it relates to the issue of divorce. And I think what was happening is these well-intentioned folks, but they were hurting for who knows all the reasons. But again, I mentioned they're looking for loopholes. They want a way out, and Paul wants to confront that with the ideal, okay? So we're going to get some ideal, and then we're going to get some reality of living in a broken world. Let's start with the ideal, verse 10. Here's what Paul says. To the married, and this is assuming two married Christians, I give this charge or command, not I, but the Lord. And what that phrase means, he's saying, this is teaching that can be attributed directly to Jesus. Now, further down in this passage, he's going to say, um, I, not the Lord. And all he's saying there is, I'm going to tell you something and you won't be able to attribute it directly to teaching of Jesus, but it's just as authoritative because I'm an apostle and I'm, I'm inspired by the Holy Spirit. I'm telling you the truth. So, a little aside there. Back to the text. I give this charge... The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Now, one thing that we should all notice as we're looking at this is Paul, uh, he doesn't speak at all of circumstances, qualifications, criteria, like he doesn't do any, he just flat out says, okay, you're asking me about marriage and divorce, and here it is, two Christians, you shouldn't get a divorce. It's a little bit abrupt, isn't it? Like a little blunt. But if we're talking about the ideal, if we're talking about God's intentions, that really is what God is after. And he's trying to say to them, listen, you're trying to get around a place where you need God to intervene. And rather than you getting out, you need to go further in and let the grace of God bring about restoration, reconciliation where you can't do it on your own. I think that's the heart that is driving what Paul is saying here. So he's drawing upon that uh, Original design we read about in Genesis 2 and Ephesians 5, and he's establishing a baseline, just generally speaking, of no divorce for believers. He's like, that's the original intent. So generally speaking, they were supposed to strive after uh, reconciliation. Here's the challenge. Okay, Paul is teaching about marriage and divorce, and any Christians would have known that, hey, Jesus taught about marriage and divorce. And his teaching seems a little bit different from Paul's. It's not quite so abrupt. If we go back to Matthew 5 and Matthew 19, Jesus seems to offer some exception clauses. So someone might say, hey, Paul, what's the deal, man? Why'd you leave that out? Again, I think it's because Paul is trying to establish a baseline, a, an original ideal for these people who are looking for loopholes. But, 
But let's look at Matthew 5 and 19 because we can't form our biblical understanding of marriage and divorce without looking at all of the texts. So here's what Jesus said in Matthew 5. He said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. So there seems to be an allowance. But for what? That's the next question. I say to you that everyone divorces his, who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, adultery obviously was addressed in the Ten Commandments. And so that is the appeal that Jesus and Paul would have been making is when you divorce from a one flesh relationship, you're trying to unone what God has made one, and I'm telling you, you can't do it, except in the case of sexual immorality. Now, here's what's so important about this. Our natural bent is to look for the loophole. And that's the last thing Jesus or Paul or anybody else in the Bible would have wanted. They would go, no, 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 no. I'm not, I'm not telling you this just so you can get out. In fact, if anything, I'm asking you, stay in it. No matter what. Keep, keep going after it. But if it gets to a place where you just absolutely can't, and, and there isn't some magical description that, like, if you can check these seven boxes, now you know that you're eligible. It, it's just saying, there is an exception. And the only reason it is an, is an exception is because of the nature of the offense. It goes right at where that one flesh relationship was formed. That's why the exception is there. Uh, Jesus repeats that in Matthew 19. So, back to our question. So, why did Paul leave those out? Why didn't he put an exception in there? And the, I think the best explanation is he was, the Corinthians were coming to him with illegitimate reasons for divorce. And so it, it wasn't that they were appealing to these exceptions that Jesus had outlined. They were like, you know what? I'm just tired of her. Or you know what? He's just a lazy bum. And, and Paul's going, wait a minute, hold on. <laughs> that, that's not going to work. This is a little more important than that. And so he is giving them choices related to illegitimate reasons for divorce. And he's saying, you can remain, you, you can divorce, but you're going to remain unmarried or you're going to reconcile. That's your options as Christians. And his silence assumes that they would have known about the exceptions if they applied. Okay? So 10 and 11, verses 10 and 11 provide a broad and certainly blunt statement of the ideal which is rooted in God's original design for marriage. Now, notice in both of the Matthew passages, Jesus refers to a certificate of divorce. And that has been misconstrued as an affirmation of what the, the one who is divorcing, it, it was like the stamp of approval that, yeah, you're okay. In actuality, 
where that uh, certificate was originated back with Moses, it was actually intended to protect the, usually it was the woman, who was being kicked out illegitimately from the marriage. And so what Moses was saying is to, to help To help that keep from happening, we're going to make the men issue a certificate of divorce, which is going to protect the woman. It's going to say to everybody, she didn't do anything wrong. So she's okay. She can get a job. She can get remarried. She can do these other things. So a man might be slower to just kick her out for any reason under the sun. Then, of course, they tried to start dealing with different criteria. And again, that's, that's what we do uh, in our heart of hearts that without the grace of God. So Jesus says, just to clarify this, and this, the certificate is referenced in Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. So in Matthew 19, 8, Paul references that, and he, or Jesus, I'm sorry, said, because of your hardness of heart... Moses allowed you, didn't command you, he allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. In other words, that that loophole was never intended as part of God's original design. And the only reason it was permitted was simply because those in that day, primarily those men's hearts were so hard they couldn't find their way to a place of reconciliation. And so it was a concession. Simply put, let me summarize this way. Divorce was permissible, but it was not prescribed. It was permissible, but it was not prescribed. And that's right in the heart of everything that we've already talked about today. I love what Jim Neuheiser says in his book, Marriage, Divorce, and Remarriage. Uh, He says, divorce is never desirable, and at least among Christians, never inevitable. Love that. While we should labor to understand what the Bible says about whether or when a marriage may end in divorce, and whether or when a divorced person may remarry, so it's, it's worthwhile looking at the Scriptures to understand what it has to say about those things. But here it is. It is most important to strive to learn how the gospel can enable shattered relationships to heal. That's where we need to spend the bulk of our time. And certainly, even when we come to this very painful subject, God's grace is sufficient. Let me give you two illustrations. How about the woman at the well? Does anybody recall how many marriages she had? Five. And she was living with a guy when she ran into Jesus. And yet the gospel was good news for her. She found life despite all of her failure. How about the woman actually caught in adultery? That was a a stonable offense. Remember all the religious leaders are all circled around her and they all got stones in their hand and they can't wait to start throwing. And what does Jesus do? 
He said, hey, 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 guys, I, I get it. I've read the law. I, I know what ought to happen here. But let me ask you one thing. If any of you haven't had to be forgiven for anything, why don't you get us started? And what happened? Everybody dropped their rocks. And then you got Jesus with this woman in all of her shame and guilt. And he says, where did they go? And what he was really saying is, they're just like you. Yours may be a little more visible at the moment. Maybe a little more uh, ugly, just given the circumstances. But their sin is just as big before a holy God as yours is. And I don't condemn you. That's the message. The gospel is good news for broken people, regardless of what form their brokenness might take. That's what we need to become experts in, whether it relates to this area or any other. So, takeaway, let's not look for loopholes. Let's look for the good news of the gospel to bring about reconciliation. Second thing that Paul addresses is the potential for divorce between believers and unbelievers. Or uh, Paul actually in, in 2 Corinthians 6 talks about this idea of being unequally yoked. That would be someone who is a believer, has the Spirit of God, and someone who isn't. And just as an aside, singles, Paul is very explicit no missionary dating, okay? Listen, it, it, you may think somehow that you have the greatest of intentions and you want to begin this relationship with an unbeliever and, and you just know that once they know you and once they know what you believe and all that kind of stuff, that, that everything is going to change. And that does happen. But Paul is very explicit. You should never enter into that relationship assuming that it will. Let God work in that guy's life or that gal's life first. And then, if they're a believer, then you can certainly enter into relationship. But the, the thing that Paul is addressing here is a context where you have a family that is full of unbelievers and a spouse within that family comes to Christ. And so they're asking Paul, what do I do? I, I'm a Christian and nobody else in my family is. So should I just leave? Should I get out of there? And certainly there can be some tension, right? When you got clashing worldviews. Here's what Paul says. To the rest, and get, so he's referring to this group of people, uh, believers married to unbelievers. I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Keep in mind the ideal. It's a believer and an unbeliever, but that marriage, that one flesh relationship is still a picture of what? The relationship that... Christ has to his church. So 
Paul is saying we want to preserve that if at all possible. That is the highest aim, is to preserve that picture. Then he gives some rationale. Verse 14, for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. Um, Paul is not speaking about salvation. So the spouse is not saved because of the Christian spouse, and neither are the children. Everybody is responsible. We are all responsible individually for placing our own faith in Christ. But that believing spouse becomes a special, unique channel of grace to that family that they would not have without their presence. So Paul is saying, stay in there. You are a walking, living, breathing gospel right in front of them. And God can and will do a work through you if you will stay. Now, having said that, we're going to get another exception. We saw the exception of sexual immorality. The second is in verse 15. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. This is referred to typically, if you're reading material, abandonment. Abandonment by the unbeliever. So if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister, that is the believer, is not enslaved or bound to the vows that they made, having been abandoned. So, two exceptions. Sexual immorality and abandonment. The the separation that takes place there, um, that really needs to be initiated. If we're going to kind of follow the instructions of Paul, that needs to be initiated by the unbeliever. So that is kind of part of the process here. And again, it's, it's the believer is saying, as long as they're willing to have me in this home, I'm going to stay. Even if it's hard, Even if it's tense at times, even if we see things differently, I'm going to stay as long as he or she will have me. Um, But then if they are put out, divorced, then they are free to remarry. That's an important distinction. I want to say just something very quickly. Um, And I don't have a lot of time to do this, but very quickly. Um, a lot of times people have questions about marital abuse. And though the scriptures do not speak explicitly to that, it's very difficult for me to conceive of that being somehow completely disassociated from the threat of abandonment. That's, that's really what the, the scriptures were doing with that, is if you are abandoned by an unbeliever, then you are protected by the ability to remarry. That's, in, that's back in the original context. So in the same way, I would say the threat of abuse is certainly no less than the threat of abandonment. So I have to say, if I'm teaching the word, there isn't anything explicit about that in the scriptures. I am making that connection based upon a lot of other stuff. 
One passage in particular I'll just mention to you, Exodus 21, 7 through 11, has some applications that are related to a woman who is literally enslaved to a master as his wife. And the relationship there and the freedom that that wife is that's available to her, I think might have some application as it relates to abuse. So I wish I could say more, um, but I got to keep moving. Let me finish with this. Um, Paul ends chapter 7 in some ways tying together this idea of permanence. Um, Let me read 39 and 42 to you. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. That's where we get that idea of till death do us part. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. So in some ways, we'll even pull last week's message about singleness into this week about marriage and divorce. And uh, when a spouse dies, then the living spouse is, quote, free, free to remarry. But then that person would apply last week's message about singleness and thinking about how is the Lord leading me to exercise my singleness for his glory? It may mean remarriage. It may mean staying single and serving the Lord in that way. Either is acceptable. That's how Paul ends the chapter. So let me finish with this. A couple of quick statements of uh, potential application. Um, I'll say it again. Please study these passages. Like, let's really get this clear in our own heads and hearts. Certainly practice them in your own home. But let's be really great as a community of faith about, about holding up God's ideal and supporting each other in that. Let's not lower the standard. Let's not introduce ex- exceptions that aren't there. Like, let's hold to it. Let's trust God with that, and His grace is most definitely sufficient. If your marriage is in trouble, and you know if it is, and we've all been there, but if your marriage is in trouble, get help. Don't just try and tough it out. You are where you are because the two of you got you there. And it's okay. We've we've all been there. So invite a godly, mature voice into the conversation who will point you to the scriptures, point you to dependence upon the spirit, and point you to the grace of God and the gospel. Invite those voices in and get help. Don't just cross your fingers and hope that you'll just get over it someday. I haven't ever seen that happen. Lastly, eliminate the option of divorce from your vocabulary. Just, it's so tempting to hold that out, to hold that over somebody's head. And uh, man, that's a tough one to recover from. So if you'll just take that off the table and just say, you know what, we're gonna, we're just gonna stay at this thing. And it may be really hard, but it's worth it. God can do some things simply by us trusting him with our relationship. So please do that. I've given you some great resources as well. Every one of those books, fantastic. And uh, if you read those, you would be an expert on uh, 
marriage and divorce and remarriage. So I want to urge you to do that. Take a minute if you would. I know this has probably felt like a tsunami, but uh, ask the Lord to give you some direction. How can you respond practically to preserve the ideal of marriage and yet also kind of walk in God's grace to recover from whatever brokenness you've experienced as it might relate to divorce, okay? Thanks, you guys.